anyway, it is a special time of year, of course. We're hearing a lot of announcements about the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles and uh, preparing for that. Obviously, it's an exciting time of year as we look forward to the feast. The feast begins just 25 days from tonight, the opening night of the feast. And all of us, I'm sure, are doing a lot to try to prepare for that, to think, starting planning and packing and what we're going to take and making sure that we have the things we need and uh, getting the things we don't have and trying to make sure we're prepared for that. But before the feast, of course, uh, you can't forget we have to, we have to go to the, and keep the feast of the Day of the Atonement. And so I want to make sure you're all making sure you're really prepared for that. I've heard that if you actually like fast about three or four times just before the Day of Atonement, it's a lot easier on the Day of Atonement. So maybe you can try that. Let me know if it works. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we do obviously look forward to the Day of Atonement for what it pictures and being at one with God and having that closeness with him that we all look forward to. But before that, just 11 days away now, is the Feast of Trumpets. And for me personally, that's probably in one way one of the most exciting feasts to me because that's really what, in essence, we're all about in this life today and what we're all looking forward to as we go through all the trials and tribulations and all that we do in life that we're doing what we do so that when that day comes and when Jesus Christ returns that as it talks about in 2 Corinthians that you know in the moment in a twinkling of an eye that we'll be raised we'll be resurrected and glorified sons of God and we should be preparing now to be a part of that resurrection we should look forward to the Feast of Trumpets and not just kind of wait until it gets there, but think about it and ask yourself, am I really prepared for that time? What is it that we need to be doing to prepare for that? Well, let's look back to Revelation 19 and let's see what the culmination of that day is as we look forward also to this day that is coming, Revelation 19. Verse 6. And we read, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God reigns supreme. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. You see, we are to be the wife of Christ. And it says that she has made herself ready. She is prepared for that day. It isn't something that just you say, well, I'm getting married today, and so boom, you go off and you get married. No, you prepare for that day. You prepare yourself. And that's what we are doing in our lives spiritually as we go forward. We prepare for that upcoming day that we're looking forward to. We are going to be the wife of Christ that's what we've been called to do. We've been betrothed to him. Over, over in Philippians 3 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul talks about that we haven't made it yet. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which the Lord Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. We press forward, forward toward that. It's hard work. We've got to press on. We've got to keep doing the right thing. We've got to keep, in essence, preparing ourselves to be that bride of Christ, that beautiful bride of Christ. Gentlemen, 
We don't think of ourselves as being a bride very often, do we? We really don't. Some of you aren't going to make very pretty brides, I'm sorry to say. Some of us, I should say. But we know that God isn't looking on the outward man. He's looking on the inward man. That's what matters to him. What's in the heart is what matters to him. And we've got to have our heart right. We've got to be prepared to be that beautiful bride that he is looking for. We went to a wedding just last Sunday. The bride came out dressed in white. Beautiful. They had prepared for this wedding for weeks and for months. Every little detail was thought out, so to speak, so that when that special day came, she was ready for that wedding. And it went off without a hitch, except for her getting hitched, of course. But it was a wonderful wedding, and everybody enjoyed it. It was a beautiful day. But the bride was ready. God is preparing us. He wants us to be ready to be that bride of his son. He wants us to be there. But we've got to do our part. So as we think about being a bride and what we have to be doing in order to be ready and acceptable to Jesus Christ, what, is it, what are those things that we need to be working on? What are those things we need to be changing in our lives? Let's think about this concept as we go through the sermon and ask ourselves, what do I need to do to be the bride of Christ? The Bible tells us how to live our lives in many different ways, in many, many different ways. And so we say, well, obviously, God's word must tell us how we need to be preparing to be that bride, to be the wife of Christ. And so we say, well, where does it tell us that? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Where does it tell us how to be a good wife and what a good wife is? What comes to mind? Well, the wisest man who ever lived wrote a book of the Bible that I'm sure we're all very familiar with. His name was Solomon. Now, I know a lot of you older people might have thought it was Henry Kissinger, but really, that, that's not quite true. Solomon had God-given wisdom, and he wrote the book that tells us a lot of that wisdom. A lot of, go as you look through the book of Proverbs, you see a lot of things that he tells us, avoid this, do this, don't do that. Watch out for this. Do these things, not the other things. As we look at Proverbs 31, what do we, what do we see? What do we have? Let's turn over there. Because we have what is traditionally called this portion of the chapter of the virtuous wife, the virtuous woman. And yet it's interesting, I think, as you look at the book of Proverbs, here you have an entire book filled with wisdom, with wise words. And yet, interestingly enough, perhaps coincidence, you might say, but I don't think there's anything that's a whole lot of coincidence in God's word in the Bible. But the very last portion of this entire book that he devoted to giving his son and others Wisdom is devoted to being a virtuous wife. A virtuous wife. Verse 10 of Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? Who can find that wife? 
How do we be a wife like that? What does it take? What does it mean to be virtuous? It's not a word that we typically think about and that's used greatly in our society today because, quite honestly, it's not a trait that most people really have. It really isn't. Because to be virtuous is something that a lot of us may think, well, she's, you know, she's a virgin, she's been chaste and all of that, and yes, that's important. But in reality, it goes way deeper than that. Even if you look up in the dictionaries that men today have written, they acknowledge what the word virtue means. Some of the definitions that they give are moral excellence, goodness, righteousness, righteousness. Interesting, isn't it? Manly excellence. You don't really think about that in the virtuous wife, do you? It says manly excellence, valor, effective force, power, or potency. See, those definitions are probably some words that you wouldn't have necessarily put together with virtue and being virtuous had I asked you and given you a little quiz to write down what does the word mean. But that is what it means. And that is the type of person that Jesus Christ wants to have for a bride, isn't it? As we read those definitions, that's the kind of wife that he desires. I bet a lot of us never realize that to be virtuous, that we really have to be people of valor. We have to be strong and effective. A person of virtue is not a weak-kneed, limp-wristed, you know, wimp. That's not what a virtuous person is about. That person is virile and effective. That person is strong and potent. That person is doing something. They're not just kind of sitting around, so to speak. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4 next, because this word virtue that we're talking about and being virtuous is a, is a word that isn't used a whole lot in the Bible. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But in Philippians, we have one of the examples of how this, of where this word is used. Philippians 4 and verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Things of virtue we are to meditate on. Meditate on these things. And he goes on in verse 9 to say, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, using himself as an example of having been this way, he said, these do and the God of peace will be with you. If we do these things, if we meditate on these things, it says God will be with you. And he will be. If we are people of virtue, we need to meditate on virtue. Ladies, you too need to meditate on virtue, on things that are of effective force, of excellence, of being a person of valor. 
the feminine nature doesn't normally go to that level of saying, I want to be an effective force, a powerful force, a person of valor, but yet, as the bride of Christ, we understand it isn't about male and female, because there is no male and female. We are going to be Christ's wife, but as such, we are going to be people of valor and effective forces. So we need to meditate on these things so that we can emulate them and incorporate them into our lives so that we can begin to live our lives in this way as Christians. If we're going to be the bride of Christ, we need to be virtuous, virile, excellent, and have manly valor. Be powerful people. That's the type of people God wants in his family, and that's what he wants for his son. As we can see, being a person of virtue, being a virtuous person is a good thing and something that we should desire. And it's something that we should strive for. And so as we go through the remainder of the sermon today, we're going to talk about this and what it means and what we need to be doing to make sure that we are ready to be that bride that we read about in Revelation 19. The title of my sermon today is The Virtuous Christian. The virtuous Christian. Turn over to Second Peter next. Second Peter chapter one. <clears throat> Peter begins out in the first verse there. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, writing this letter. And in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. You see, God has given us all things that pertain to life, not only for this life in the physical life, but he's given us what we need so that one day we can have eternal life in his family too. Because he goes on to say that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. You see, we were called by virtue. That same word that we read earlier that we are to meditate on. And if you look up the definition of that word... In the New Testament, it's interesting that it pretty much parallels what I read what our dictionary defines virtue as. It says that it is properly manliness or valor, excellence, excellence. See, those are the same things we read that our very dictionaries understand. And yet, a lot of times we don't think about it in that way. We are called by glory and virtue. We are called to be virtuous. He goes on to say in verse 4, And by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Yes, that's what we have been called to. We've been called to be there on that culmination of the day of trumpets when Jesus Christ returns. That's what we look forward to. That's the big picture that we hope to be a part of. But also, in verse 5, For this very reason, having 
giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. Peter says we need to add to our faith. First of all, he says you've got to have faith, but you've got to add to it that virtue. Because as we go through and see more and more about what virtue really means, we're going to understand more why it's necessary to have faith and virtue. Because they work hand in hand together. And to virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. These are all important traits that all of us need to have. But the second one he lists here is virtue. And he goes on in verse 8 to say then, For if these things are yours and abound... If these things are a part of you, if you live your life virtuously with faith and all of the other things that he mentioned here, he says, if these things things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're going to be fruitful, not unfruitful, if we're virtuous. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. If you lack virtue, if you lack faith, if you lack knowledge, self-control and perseverance and godliness, he says, if you lack these things, you're short-sighted even to blindness. See, I think what he's trying to get across here is that as, as we incorporate these things in our lives, we can see clearly God's plan. We can see what he is doing in our lives, how he is working with us. But if we begin to fade away, so to speak, and we aren't close to God and we don't have these things, we begin to be short-sighted. We can't see very well. If I don't have my contacts in, I'm just about blind. I couldn't see any of your faces I could see blobs out there. I'd be short-sighted. But he says, even to blindness. Because spiritually speaking, how many of us know people who have had 20-20 vision, so to speak? They have known the truth. They have understood the truth. They have lived according to God's laws. And yet, they begin to lose their focus. They began to lose contact with God. They began to turn aside. And bit by bit by bit, they became blinded. And now today, how many thousands of people that were in God's church 20 and 30 years ago are no longer here? They're just out there in the world doing their own thing. Going to church on Sunday, if at all. Keeping Christmas eating anything they want to eat, doing anything they want to do. Because God has blinded them again. That veil that was lifted and their eyes being opened is now back over their head, so to speak. They can no longer see because they haven't had these things. God wants us to have these aspects in our life. They're important and virtue is one of them. God has given us these traits through his spirit, and it's our job to develop and strengthen them. And virtue is one of those key ingredients that we must have. And so let's take some time, as I said, and let's look at this trait and look at what it means to be virtuous. 
Let's go back to Proverbs 31. Because once again, this tells us about being a virtuous wife. And it has some very good knowledge for the women, quote unquote, who are wives that can be helpful to them and how they should live. But yet, as so much of God's word is dual, if we look at this from the other side of the coin spiritually and what the virtuous wife has as she should be living her life, physically speaking, we can also apply these spiritually if we think about them from that standpoint. So you might want to get a marker here because we're going to be going back and forth as we go through these verses on the virtuous wife. Verse 10 of Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. Who can find one? What did Jesus Christ say? When I return, will I find faith? Will he find faith? Will he find virtue? Will he find a wife, a bride, or not? He wants to find a wife. He wants each and every one of us to be that bride. And he's looking for us, so to speak. He wants us to be there. It says, her, wor her worth is far above rubies. Our value to God is limit limitless. It's unlimited. His love for us has no bounds, so to speak. God gave his only begotten son to be that sacrifice so that we can be the bride of his son. He gave everything he had, so to speak. As we look at our lives and we think of what am I willing to give up and what would be the hardest thing for me to give up? And if it was just you and your wife or your children, or maybe you just had a child, your wife had died, that would probably be the hardest thing to give up. That would have more value. That They say there would be no value. You can't put a value on that. Our worth to God is far above anything else. He cares for us. And if we realize that and understand that he's willing to do whatever it takes to have us be a part of his family, that his love is limitless, then our love for him should be the same. Going on in verse 11, he says, The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. You see, here we see a husband mentioned. And the way I kind of look at it is that the virtuous wife has a husband, in essence, that allows her to be a virtuous wife. He isn't standing over her in every little thing she does and telling her what to do constantly. He isn't doing everything and she is just this person that has no value, so to speak, that can't do anything on her own. As husbands, we need to allow our wives to, in essence, live their lives and not be telling them every little thing. I've heard stories about husbands who have been so overly, you know, controlling, I guess the word would be, that they are there about everything. They go with their wife to the grocery store. They tell her what she can and can't buy. 
They tell her, don't get this and don't do that. And don't hear, blah, blah, blah. And on it goes. They don't let her have any involvement in the finances or any other decisions. They do everything, more or less. They don't allow her to become a virtuous wife, so to speak. But God, he understands that he has to allow us to become a virtuous wife. He isn't going to force us. God is not going to drag us kicking and screaming to the wedding of his son. We have to want that. It has to be our desire. We have to do our part. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be there, but he's not going to make us. He's going to give us all the help that we need to get there, but he's not going to force us. He wants to know that he can trust us, and that's what our lives are about, isn't it? It's about whether or not God can truly trust us for all of eternity to be in his family, to be the wife of his son. His heart has to trust us. He has to know that we will love him and obey him unconditionally forever throughout eternity. That's a long time. Our minds can't even really comprehend that. His heart safely trusts her. As we think about an example in the Bible, you think about Abraham. And Abraham was a man that God was using and working with. He knew him. He blessed him. And he finally, in his old age, gave him a son. But then he asked him that question or told him to do that thing that we just talked about. That would be so very difficult for anyone to do. He said, you take your son, your only son out, and you sacrifice him to me. Make him a sacrifice. Turn back to Genesis 22. He was testing Abraham to see if he would really do it. He wanted to know what Abraham's heart was. He wanted to know if he could really trust Abraham to do the right thing, to obey him. And so Abraham took Isaac. He took him up there. He laid him on that altar, on that wood that he had prepared. And he took the knife and was ready to sacrifice him. And just at the last minute, at the last possible second, so to speak, He stops him. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now God knew that he feared him, that Abraham's heart was right. He waited until the last possible second. And sometimes that's what God does with us as he tries and tests us to say, is this person really going to obey me? Unconditionally surrendering his will to my will throughout eternity. Is he going to do that? Or is he going to do his own thing? Is he going to go out and just say, I can't do that? It's asking too much. 
And yet, God always is there for us. And just as with Abraham, even when it got so close to that final horrible moment, so to speak, that's when God stepped in and said, don't do it, stop. And as we have trials and tests, as God tries and tests us to see where is our heart, can I safely trust him, he's going to push us all the way to the end of our, to our limits, so to speak, to see is this person really going to obey me? Does he really love me enough to trust in me? God wants to be able to trust in us, but we have to be able to trust in him too, don't we? God isn't going to give us and and put us through anything that we can't handle. He's not going to give us any trial too big that we can't take it. He says he will provide a way of escape, but he will test us up to a point, up to that point at times, to see where we are, where our heart is with him. That's the kind of person, in essence, that's being talked about here in Proverbs 31. His heart safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. You see, you ask, well, what kind of gain can God get from me? What do I have to offer God? I'm nothing. I'm just a weak physical human being. I have all kinds of problems and mistakes. What can I possibly offer God? And in one sense, we have nothing to offer God. He has everything. But on the other side of the coin, God's gain is us being sons. He wants to have a family. He wants to have many more sons. That is the gain that he is looking for. And that is the gain that the virtuous wife, in essence, is wanting to give to her husband, to make sure that her husband has no lack of gain. And so as we live our lives, we are giving God gain, as it were, personally, as we obey him, as he knows his heart can trust us. But we're also hopefully giving him gain through the others that we affect in our life, through the effect that, that the way we live, And the way that we show our love for God and others see that. Perhaps turning many to righteousness. That's what we should all be seeking to do. Turning others to righteousness. It isn't just about me. It isn't. If it's just about me and God, where's the good in that? It's about bringing much gain to God. And that's what the virtuous wife is doing. Let's go on in Proverbs 31 to verse 12. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. As we think about doing good and not evil, we understand, yes, it's doing good, doing right things, doing nice things is is a good thing. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are the workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created to do good works. God put us here on earth, and part of the reason we are here is to do good works, to do good things to help people, to serve people, as we heard about in the sermonette today, to help people and turn them to God, so to speak, through our good works, to serve our fellow man. 
And, it's, and she, she also, it says, she does this all the days of her life. It isn't something that you just do one time or you just say, well, you know, I only have three good deeds a day I do, and I've already used them up, so you're going to have to wait until tomorrow. I've seen some little bumper stickers like that and whatnot. No, it isn't a matter of you run out of good things to do. You've done your good deed for the day. No, we live our life that way all day, every day. Titus 3.14 says, Let our people also learn to maintain good works. Maintain them. Do them all your days. Doing these good works constantly to meet urgent needs, as as he says. To meet urgent needs. If there's a need, fill it. Once again, we heard in the sermonette about helping, serving, and doing things. And he stole all my scriptures. He talked about us needing to have a, you know, a good heart. And I'm thinking, well, some people's hearts need a little more work than others. But Matthew 25, just as he read and talked about there, that's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. We can't go out and personally do something for God or for Jesus Christ. But as we do those things... For others, we're doing them for God. We're serving God. We're serving Jesus Christ. We do them with that attitude of saying, I want to serve you because I know Jesus Christ is working in you. And I want to serve him. And as I serve you, I am serving him. As you go out and live your life, going about your daily chores, so to speak, What do you do? Are you just concerned with taking care of you and your family? Or are you concerned with doing more things outside the family? Do you do good works when it's convenient or any time? If it's just when it's convenient, it's oftentimes not about doing it for the right reason. It's more about becomes doing it to be seen of other men. Because if, if, somebody, if somebody calls you up for help in the middle of the night and say, my car just broke down. I need somebody to come help me. I, 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 can't, I, don't, I can't change the tire. I don't have what, the, the right wrench or whatever. You're going to do it. We've got to do good works. Not when it's convenient. Not when it's easy. But whatever comes along, we should do it. We should do it because we know that it glorifies God. Because we know it's pleasing to Him. We know that's what He wants us to do. Christ and God expect us to do good all the days of our life. All the days of our life. Until the day we die, so to speak. If we can do something good for others, we should try to do it. We should try to do all that we can to serve others. You think about another example of the Good Samaritan and how the certain ones came along and they saw the guy laying in the ditch, beaten up by robbers, and they passed on the other side. Somebody else will help him. Well, somebody else came along. You and I had better be that somebody else because that's what God has called us to do. Good works all the days of our lives. Verse 13 of Proverbs 31.
She seeks wool and flax. She's seeking. It isn't she's waiting for things to come to her. She's going out and she's seeking these things. This flax it's talking about is more like linen and thread. Perhaps she's making clothing and items like that. And it and goes on to say, and willingly works with her hands. She willingly works with her hands. She is being industrious. She is doing work. She's not worried about getting her fingers dirty. Oh, I can't do that. I just got my nails done. Really? I've got a wedding to go to. These cute little French tips. But that's not the virtuous wife, is it? She's willingly working with her hands, doing the job that needs to be done, making sure that her husband lacks no gain, as we read earlier. He lacks no gain because she's industrious and she's working and she's doing something. She's not sitting around watching soap operas. She's industrious. She's hardworking. She's producing something in all that she does. As we think about the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, it's a matter of the virgins lacked oil. The foolish virgins lacked oil. Why? Because they weren't industrious. They weren't hardworking. They were sleeping. They were taking it easy. They weren't making sure that their oil was full and they were able to get that full constantly. She's constantly working. She's constantly doing what needs to be done and not waiting for someone else to do it or saying, well, what's your hurry? What's your rush? We've got plenty of time. I know I heard years ago an individual talking about, well, Christ is going to return eventually, so it's like it's not a big deal. What are you all so worked up about now? What's your hurry to be perfect now? I'll tell you what my hurry is. I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to be here a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. None of us do. We've got to be preparing now to be this bride of Christ, to be a virtuous wife. Not thinking I've got lots of time to prepare. We don't have a lot of time. Our time is now. We've got to make use of it. Verse 14 of Proverbs 31. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Okay, she brings her food from afar. Hmm, how does that work? Well, what about this? You can go to the store closest to where you live and you can buy whatever it is you want to buy. And you may pay a little premium for it because Harris Teeter is the closest store to me. So, and it's a really nice store. They have great stores here. But they're very expensive too. But you know what? If you've got to drive across town to get your food, it takes a little more time. It takes a little more effort. But in the long run, you're being industrious. You're taking what you've been given and using it wisely and prudently, aren't you? Well, how does that apply spiritually speaking? Well, what kind of food are we being fed spiritually? And how far and wide 
do we go to get our spiritual food? Do we go to church because it's convenient, so to speak, and it's easy? Why are we here, so to speak? It's, not, it's a lot easier for me to just stay home today. I wouldn't have had to prepare this sermon and all of that. I could have just stayed home and relaxed, listen on the Internet or something. There's people that drive long distances to go to church every week, an hour, some cases two hours, and they make the effort to do that. It's an effort to get fed spiritually, to do what's right. They go out of their way, so to speak, even though nobody's there forcing them to do it. Most of us coming to this congregation probably are within an hour. There's some that may travel an hour. A lot of us, like myself, only have to drive 15 or 20 minutes. It's not very far. But yet, as we think about all the spiritual food that we should be getting, we need to remember that being here on the Sabbath day isn't a matter of if it's convenient. Being here on the Sabbath day is important. It's really important. It isn't just a matter of the spiritual food. It's also the fellowship. It all works together. Hebrews 10.24 tells us that we're to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Just because you have a hard day at the office or a hard week at the office or your back hurts or this or that, are you going to go to the effort to make sure that you get fed spiritually, that you get your spiritual food? Or are you going to do what's easy and just stay home and say, well, I'll just stay home, I'll listen to a tape, I'll listen to a CD or watch a DVD? There's a lot of ways that we need to be fed spiritually. It isn't just a matter of church. But we need to make sure that we are looking far and wide for our spiritual food, not just getting what's easy, so to speak. If all you do is just read a couple of chapters in the Bible every day, and just say, well, I'm going to read a couple of Proverbs here, and I got my Bible study in. If that's all you're doing, you're not doing your part. You're not doing what you should be doing. You need to search far and wide. You need to be studying in depth, going out and getting commentaries and books, learning in depth God's Word so that you can understand it more fully. The church has a lot of different publications. The Living Church News is full of good articles. The current one, of course, focusing on the feast days and that time of year that we are coming into. Are you reading those articles? Are you studying them? Are you taking the time to read the Tomorrow's World, to read the booklets, to reread these things, to go through them in depth? To learn what you can from them. Or do you just think you already know? Well, I know about that. I don't need to read that. If that's your attitude, you aren't being spiritually fed. Making sure that we are going far and wide, so to speak. Going and getting our food from afar is what it's about. Living University. A wonderful opportunity for all of us to take some time to take a class. They do take time. You can't just do a class and say, well, I'll give it 30 minutes a week. That's not going to do it. It takes effort. It takes time. 
But that's what God expects of us. If we're going to be profitable servants, if we're going to be virtuous, we need to make sure that we get our spiritual food from afar, taking time and effort to be fed in that way. Verse 15, moving on in Proverbs 31. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. She gets up when it's dark outside to provide food for her household. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't do mornings. As in, mornings are just not my time. My wife, she wakes up at 5 o'clock or something without even an alarm. It's just annoying. I can sleep until 7 or whatever. I mean, I woke up at 6 this morning and looked at the clock and thought, eh, I don't have to get up. So I went back to sleep until 7. But getting up when it's dark isn't, in essence, a fun thing, so to speak. I don't like having to get up early. But yet every single morning during the week when I have to go to work, I have to be on a schedule. And I've got to get up early to make sure that I have the time to do the things that need to be done before I go to work. I've got to have my time in prayer getting close to God. I've got to get my spiritual exercise, so to speak, as well as my physical exercise. And I can't do that if I wait until the sun comes up. She gets up early when it's yet night and provides food for her household. She's providing food for them. See, it's interesting that we read about that she has servants. Aren't those the ones that are supposed to be getting up and making food for her? But yet, she's getting up early and she's providing for them. Once again, showing it's not just about her. She could tell her servant, hey, you make sure and you're up at 5.15 because when I get up at 5.30, I want my coffee ready. But she's the one that gets up and provides for her servants because she's industrious. She's hardworking. She doesn't just take it easy in life. She does the things that need to get done. She does the things that need to get done on a daily basis, but the only reason she can get them done is because she gets up early. She gets going with her day. She feeds her household. And we have to make sure that we feed on Christ. Once again, as we looked at the previous verse that we talked about, bringing her food from afar, she brings it from afar but then she gets up early to make sure that, in essence, she can prepare that food, that she has that food, and she's able to eat of that food, and she prepares it for her family. She shares what she's been given. She does the work of preparing it for others. The theme of her working and her hard, diligent work constantly goes throughout the rest of this entire chapter. As I said, all of these things that we're talking about here, they all fit together. There isn't just individual items. They all fit together, and they all need to be considered. Getting up before dawn to be spiritually fed is important. Now, I realize everybody doesn't have to do that. Some of you can get up and go to work late, okay? I know, my son, he doesn't have to be at work until he wants to. He's, he works for Google, and they say, you come to work when you want. We don't care as long as you put your eight hours in. Well, for most of us that have jobs... We have to actually be there at certain hours. And so we've got to get up early to make sure that we are ready and prepared and are able to go and do the work that needs to be done during the day. 
But we've started our day off right. We've started our day off with that contact with God. We've started our our day off being fed spiritually so that then throughout the rest of the day, we can go on that strength that God gives us. We've got to have that strength. Verse 16, Proverbs 31. She considers a field and buys it. She considers a field and buys it. Now, a lot of men wouldn't, quote-unquote, let their wife go out and buy a field and plant a vineyard. But this woman's husband safely trusts her, doesn't he? And so she goes out, she considers a field, and she buys it. Spiritually speaking, we have been called into God's family. And having been called in, there's a commitment, there's a contract, a covenant that we make with God that we have to consider before we become a part of that family. Hold your place here and turn over to Luke 14. Verse 26 here. Luke 14, 26. This this passage is a section that probably most all ministers go over with in depth as we're counseling people for baptism, making sure that they understand what it is that they are wanting to do and what it means, making sure that they are willing to commit their lives to this. Luke 14:26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We have to hate, not that we hate ourselves as as just your angry hate, but we love less everything else but our great God and his son, Jesus Christ. We have got to put them above all. And it isn't just a matter of saying, well, my, my wife is here, and my kids are here, and the church is here, and my job is here, etc., etc., and God's up here. No, all of those other things are here, but God comes first and above all, but he, he's off the chart. He's not just down here, just one step above your wife and children. He's off the chart. There is no comparison. You give your life to God. You make that commitment to God. You consider the ramifications of what you are doing, and you make that commitment, and you say, yes, I am willing to give my life to you. If we don't, we cannot be his disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross of Christ that symbol of his death and the suffering that he went through, daily taking up that cross and bearing it, looking to God for the strength to do that, because that's the only way that we can bear it. But yet we've got to bear it. We've got to remember what Christ did. We've got to remember and acknowledge that he died because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. We've got to consider carefully the calling that we've been given, making sure that we are fully committed to it. 
And that's what she does. She considers that field carefully before she buys it. She makes sure that she is able to do something good with it. As it goes back in Proverbs 31, 16, she considers a field and buys it, and from her profits she plants a vineyard. Yes, she has considered that that field that she's going to buy is going to be profitable. It's going to produce something. She's doing good work. She's producing something. That theme carries through, helping others and serving others. She makes sure that there is profit in it, just as we realize that we give our lives to God. What profit do we have in it? Eternal life. That's the profit that we have if we are truly virtuous, if we love our God, and if we will serve him forever. She provides, she considers a field and buys it, and from her profits she plants a vineyard. She doesn't take her profits and say, yippee, we're going to the mall, I'm going shopping. I need a new wardrobe. I need 30 dresses and 90 pair of shoes. Got to have at least three pair of shoes for every dress, right ladies? But she doesn't, she doesn't take for herself. She takes from the profit and she plants a vineyard. She's constantly producing, constantly active, working. Not just saying, okay, now I'm all set. I've got everything I need right now. I'm good. I'm set for life. I don't have to do anything else. She continues to show a profit. She continues, as we read back in verse 11, to show no lack of gain. For her husband. No lack of gain. We need to make sure. That we have no lack of gain. And we produce a profit. For our great God. In all that we do. God will bless us with increase. But we've got to get in there. And do the work. We've got to be working. If we're just sitting around saying. God I'm just waiting for the blessings to come down. Where are they? No, you get out there and you work. You work hard. You put your life into it, and God will bless you. The blessings will come. But you've got to do your part. We've got to set an example for others. We've got to put all of our life and all of our being into serving God, into doing the work. He has given us a work to do here. This church is doing a work. We are preaching a gospel. We've got to put our heart into it, our whole heart into it. Not everybody can work physically for the church, but it's only by your tithes and offerings that this church can keep going. And so as you go out and produce a profit, if you just say, well, I'm set now for the next year, I don't need to work anymore. And I've known people that have been like that. They're like, well, I made enough money that I can go off and live in Hawaii for a year and surf. And then they go live off of all their money. And then... When they need food or money, they go out and get a job again. How is that producing a profit for God? We have got to produce a profit for God. And in this life, our tithes and offerings, in essence, are some of that profit so that this work can get done. We've got to be sure that we are doing everything that we can to keep working constantly. 
verse 17, it says, She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. Ladies, you've been pumping iron lately, strengthening your arms. you got, you know, got the curls, bench press. She's strengthening her arms because she's working constantly. She's constantly doing something. She's not sitting around taking it easy. She understands the importance of being strong and healthy and getting exercise. That's an important thing physically for us. As I said, I get up most every morning on the weekdays and I exercise. Not because I like to, because I don't like to. Quite honestly, I don't enjoy exercising. But I know that I need to. I know that it profits my body. And how can I glorify God in my body if I don't exercise and I'm sick and I'm hurting? If I'm eating a bunch of junk, I'm gaining weight. I love to eat. Eating's like one of my favorite things. The problem is the food doesn't love me. And so if I don't exercise, this body's going to blow up. I've got to get my exercise physically speaking. But spiritually speaking, we've got to make sure that we get our exercise in that way. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to glorify God in our bodies. But we not only glorify Him on our physical body, but in our spirit. Our spiritual bodies, in essence, we have to glorify God. How do we do that? What is it that we need to be strong spiritually for? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. I got word in the sermon that he was going to steal that scripture too, but he stopped quickly enough, thankfully. Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. What did we read about that a virtuous person was? A virtuous person is manly excellence, valor, an effective force, power. And that's what we have to be spiritually. We have to have spiritual power. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. It isn't our strength. It isn't our might that we're looking at here. It doesn't matter how much you can bench press. When it comes to what we need to be strong for spiritually, the physical is irrelevant. Because what we are having to be strong for is what it goes on to say here in the next couple of verses. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see, we need to be able to stand up and defend ourselves against Satan, the devil, because he is out there as a roaring lion. He seeks to devour us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is the strength that we need to be able to defend ourselves against, spiritual wickedness. If we aren't strong, if we aren't exercising ourselves spiritually, Satan is going to win the battle. And there are times that we will find we will lose those battles because we aren't strong, because we aren't exercising the spirit. We aren't close to God. We aren't steady and we aren't praying and we aren't fasting. We aren't meditating 
on being virtuous and all of the other things. The virtuous wife is strong. She strengthens her arms. She isn't weak. She goes out and she works hard every day. She gets up early, not because she wants to or likes to, but because she knows it's what she needs to do. Because if she doesn't get up early, she won't have time to be strong, strength, and have that strength to go out and do the battles of the day with Satan, with his demons, with spiritual wickedness. Be strong in the Lord. And if God gives us that strength, we can and will overcome. Let's go on. Verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She perceives her merchandise is good. What spiritual merchandise does a Christian have that he could say is good or bad? If we think about it spiritually, she has good merchandise because, once again, she's producing. She's got a vineyard. She's got a field. She's planting vegetables and fruits. She can see that those are good. She can taste them. She's making garments of clothing and other things. She knows that they're made well. But what about us as we look at this spiritually? What do we have to offer others, so to speak? What spiritual merchandise do we have that's good or bad? What about the example that we set for others? What about our example as we go out in this world and we live our lives? What do people see in us? What did Jesus Christ say that we are to be? Did he not say that we are to be lights to the world? Matthew 5, verse 13 we're told what kind of lights we are to be, what kind of it, and what we are to do with those lights. Matthew 5, verse 13 talks about being the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but what if the salt loses its flavor? How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, salt is what makes things taste good. People like things that are, have salt on them usually. Now, I have high blood pressure, and they told me that you got to cut back on your salt. I used to think it was like another food group, my wife said. I put salt on, and then I was one of those ones, salt first, taste later. So when the doctor said, you got to cut this out, I started cutting back. Things just didn't taste as good. And other people said, well, you know what, if you, you just keep up with this, you cut way back on the salt, pretty soon you won't even like things with salt on it. You'll realize that you've been missing out on all the true flavors. You'll come to a point where you'll say, oh, I don't even, I don't even want salt anymore. It's not true. <laughs> I still love salt. Salt is good. It adds flavor. And as we go out and live our lives and be examples for others, do we add flavor? Do we add joy and happiness 
to the people around us? Or are we like pouring hot sauce on there? It's like, ooh, I like hot sauce too, but it's got a lot of salt in it. That's why. But, you know, we've got to set that example that others see us and say, wow, this person is a wonderful person. I can see there's something different about him or her. As he goes on to say in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, they see our good works. We let our light shine We don't hide the gift that we've been given. We don't hide the knowledge that we've been given. We share it. Too many times people are embarrassed about our beliefs. I've seen it over and over again. And they really don't want to tell people what they believe or why they do what they do. If somebody asks you, you know, well, why can't you be here on Saturday? We really need you to be here. It would be great if you could do this. And you're just like, well, I'm busy. I'm sorry, I can't make it. I've got other plans. How is that being a light? We're not to go cram our religion down their throat, but we are to let our light shine so that they can see our light, that they can understand there is something different. And here's part of what it is. In my job as the festival site planner, I go all over the country, and I meet with dozens of people. And it's the reason I'm there is because of what? The Feast of Tabernacles. And so one of the first things they always ask me is, well, what's your event? You know, what's the purpose of your event? What's it all about? And I get to tell them, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. What's that? Really? Why do you do that? Oh, okay. I get to tell them about the Sabbath day. I get to have meals with them. And while they're eating a nice big piece of shrimp, I get to tell them we don't eat shrimp or lobster. That's always the fun part. <laughs> but no, it's inevitable that in a meal sometime, and they'll, they'll have perhaps have already ordered something, and then they'll be eating, and something will come up, and I'll, I'll say, well, no, actually, we don't eat shrimp and seafood. And, and they're like, oh, is this offending you? I'm like, no, no, go right ahead. doesn't bother me at all. I don't eat it, but, you know, you're welcome to help yourself, so to speak. But we've got to let our light shine to make sure that others know who we are and what we're about. If we put our light under a bushel, how is the gospel being preached through you? We are called to be a part of this work. And it isn't just your tithes and your offerings that's doing that. It's your example. It's your light shining as you go out there in this world that helps preach this gospel too. There are hundreds and probably thousands of people who have been called into the church of God over the years not because of a booklet or a television, a television program, a radio program, a magazine, or on the Internet, but because of somebody's example, because they knew someone in the church, and they got to know them, they got to understand what they were about, and what is this way of life about. And now they're in God's church today because that person let their light shine. That's what God wants us to do. Let our light shine, not hide it. 
she has a light. And she's letting her light shine too. A virtuous Christian will let their light shine. Verse 19 of Proverbs 31. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. See, once again, she's just continuing to do, to help others, to do good works. She helps the needy. We have instituted an outreach program here locally at headquarters. My father wanted to make sure that we didn't just, in essence, just do for the church of God. And he said, we need to start doing other things outside to do some projects, to let people in the area know who we are, to let our light shine, in essence, is what it's about. And so we're going out and we're, going, we're beginning to do these different projects. And hopefully this outreach will spread around the world. Letting the light of the church shine of who we are and what we're about and who God is and what he is about. Helping the poor. Once again, she is working. She is producing as we should be as Christians. Working hard, producing, steadying, praying, staying close to God, but producing something with what he has given us. She doesn't go around just ordering others around. She's got her servants. She could have them do all the work. But it says that she's doing the work too. She gets right in there with them. She's setting the example. That's what we need to be doing. Setting the example in our lives and how we live our lives. Verse 21 says, She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. It's talking here, if you look at the commentaries, about like a double layer of clothing. She's not worried about her family getting cold. Her family stays warm even when the weather's bad. We think about this from a spiritual standpoint. When the weather's bad spiritually, we're going through trials and tests, aren't we? The weather turns bad. We get cold, the the wind starts to blow, the snow starts to fall. Things get tough. But yet, if we are close to God, God will take care of us. He'll help us through those trials and tests because we have prepared in advance. We don't wait until the snow hits to say, Ooh, I didn't buy chains for the car. Ooh, I forgot to get whatever it might be that you need because the snow is now upon us. I love the snow. I love being in the snow when I can snow ski, but I love being in it because I have the right clothing on. I'm prepared for it. I don't go up skiing in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. I did that as a dumb teenager a couple of times, and it didn't work out too well. Nowadays, I realize I've got to prepare. I've got to wear the right thing. And if I do, I have a great time. It's wonderful. And when the wind blows, it's okay because I've got a warm coat on. I've got my purple on, the scarlet, as she says. We've got to make sure that we are clothed spiritually. We have that spiritual clothing on that is going to protect us from the wind 
from the rain and from the snow. And that clothing is talked about if you go back over to Ephesians chapter 6. That clothing that's talked about here that we have to put on is called the whole armor of God. We've got to make sure that we put that whole armor on. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we have the truth, we know the truth, we are living the truth. It is about us. And we have that breastplate of righteousness. All thy commandments are righteousness. We are keeping God's commandments. We are obeying him and having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what we're about, doing the work, doing the work, working hard, getting that gospel message out, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Those are the spiritual garments that we've got to have. Those are the spiritual garments that we have got to put on and make sure that we are clothed with them daily. We don't leave our homes without having put those spiritual garments on. The virtuous wife makes sure her household has the garments on, that they are protected. And we've got to make sure spiritually that we have those spiritual garments on ourselves as well. These are all important things. And you're probably looking at Proverbs 31 and saying, well, he's not going to make it, is he? He's out of time. You're right, I'm out of time. But I did make it. You know why? Because my plan wasn't to finish this chapter today. I knew I couldn't anyway. But what I want to do is to encourage you to now go back home in the next 14 days before the day of trumpets, go through the remainder of this chapter, think on these things, meditate on things of virtue. Think, what do I need to be doing in my life that I'm not to be virtuous? The virtuous wife produced much good fruit. She worked hard. She took care of her family. She took care of her entire household. From a physical standpoint, she had a happy, well-fed, well-taken-care-of family. The virtuous Christian who does all the things that we need to be doing, as we talked about, spiritually, we will reap the fruits of our labor just as she reaped the fruits of her labor, just as she served her family and gave them what they needed we also can serve our family and give our family what we need, our spiritual family as well as our physical family. We need to go through these verses and think about what it is that Jesus Christ wants in a wife. What is the bride he is looking for? What does he expect to find? Or what, is he, what must he find, I guess I should say, for us to be worthy to be his bride? The Feast of Trumpets is coming soon. Let's make sure we do everything we can to prepare for it, but ultimately, and more importantly, 
that we prepare for that coming Feast of Trumpets. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15:52, when Jesus Christ returns in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will he find faith? Will he find a virtuous bride? Let's all do all that we can to be virtuous Christians so that we can be prepared to be the bride of Christ. 